Let's now turn to our passage, Jonah chapter 1, verse 4 to 6. That is Jonah 1, 4 to 6. And this is the word of God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our study this morning in the book of Jonah. What we started to see last week is that Jonah cannot stand the idea that God's offer of radical grace to undeserving people is just as much for his enemies as it is for his friends. And so when God says to him, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it, Jonah says, no, let them all die. We started to notice it's going to be very hard for us to get on board with seeing Jonah's attitude in ourselves, tend to think better of ourselves than that. And it's going to be very hard to understand this same tendency to pull away from God is in us as we start to see how radical this offer of his grace really is. It's going to be hard to identify with Jonah. I was reading in Isaiah chapter 55 one morning this past week, came across this verse, God speaking, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. You think, that's wonderful. <laughs> you're spiritually thirsty, you're spiritually starving, and God says that he can quench your thirst, satisfy your hunger, that he will fill you up, that you will be absolutely thrilled, that what he gives you will delight you. It'll cost you nothing. You read that and you think, that's wonderful. The only precondition here is you have to be thirsty. That's it. There is no other precondition, nothing else that you have to do, nothing that you have to change. If you're thirsty, God says, I will satisfy you. It's wonderful news if you're thirsty. And then the same God says to Jonah, oh, and by the way, this wonderful radical grace for undeserving people, it's not just for you. It's also for those people that you can't stand. I make the same offer under the same terms to anyone. If anyone is thirsty and they come to me, I will satisfy them. Jonah, that includes the Ninevites. Go to them and let them know that I'm warning them. Go proclaim my grace to people who don't deserve it, people that you hate, and let them know that I will treat them just like I treat you. Now, again, we struggle to understand what that was like for Jonah to hear and if you want to get on board with it, you have to think about people who are so diametrically opposed to each other that they hate each other because of what each other embody in their perspective. It'd be a little bit, it's not exact, and I'm going to be a little provocative, so 
stay with me to the end. It'd be a little bit like God saying, hey, Antifa Jonah, now that your thirst is quenched, go to the right-wingers and proclaim my grace to them. Hey, militia Jonah, now that your thirst is quenched, go to the left wing and proclaim my grace to them. Hey, Democrat Jonah, go to the conservatives. Hey, Republican Jonah, go to the liberals. Tell them both that they are equally wanted and equally invited to come get water, wine, bread, milk without cost. And they don't have to change their politics first to get it. Hey, Black Lives Matter activist Jonah. Establishment Jonah. Black Jonah, white Jonah, Asian Jonah, Hispanic Jonah. Go to those who have despised you. Go to those whom you have despised and proclaim to them this grace that is so rich and satisfying for you. Proclaim that it's also for them. Is it any wonder that Jonah fled from the presence of God? God gave him a glimpse into how radical this grace really is. A glimpse that says, my offer of grace is just as much to people who you can't stand as it is to you. Because from where I sit, there's really no difference. You're both thirsty. You're both starving. You're both made in my image, and I want you both with me, and I want you both with each other. And that's where it's hard to be on the same page with God where it's easy to flee from his presence, to want to escape hearing any more from him because we tend to see ourselves in a different category from those people, whoever those people are. We tend to see ourselves in a different category, one that is deserving of God's grace more than they are, one that does not even want to be in the same room with them, much less even consider being in heaven with them. That was last week's message. It's hard to be on the same page with God. Here's this week's message. It's a second reason for why it's hard to be on the same page with God. And this one is not because we hate some people. It's because we just don't care enough about others. It's because we're not as concerned about the human race as God is. We don't really care as much as we should. That's what you see in today's passage. Jonah, the sailors, the captain of the ship, they're all dealing with a violent storm that storm threatens to de destroy every one of them. They're all in this thing together. They're all suffering together. And as you watch them respond to suffering, you're going to see four things. One, you're going to see a healthy response to the shared experience of human suffering. A healthy response to humanity's suffering. Second, you're going to see a broken response to humanity's suffering. Third, you're going to see the source of that broken response. And finally, fourth, you see the solution to the broken response. So we'll see a healthy response to human suffering, a broken response to that same suffering, the source of that brokenness, and the solution to it. First, a healthy response to humanity's suffering. The sailors find themselves in this unexpected predicament. They've taken Jonah on board, they've left port, and they find themselves in the middle of a storm that is so fierce it threatens to destroy their ship. And that's just part of what it's like to live in this world. They have no way to know that this storm is the direct result of Jonah's sin, that this storm is God's executing judgment on him and on Jonah's decision to reject God, to reject his words. The sailors have no way to know that. And yet in a very real sense, this is the normal experience of life on this planet. In this instance, God is directly judging Jonah's rejection of him and Jonah's rejection of his words, but the history of the human race 
is that we live every single day under the ever-present, ongoing judgment of God. And that's been the experience of our race since our first parents rejected God all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Since that time, we live on a cursed planet, and we live with the effects of that curse, of that judgment, and they just show up constantly in our lives when you're not expecting them and when you can't avoid them, just like this storm shows up when the sailors didn't expect it and they can't avoid it. Living under the judgment of God is just part of the human condition. The question is, how do you respond to the unavoidable judgment of sin when you encounter it? And you watch the sailors and you realize they do so in a healthy way. They fear, they pray, they act sacrificially. We'll run through those real quickly. They fear. What does that tell you? It means that they are looking around at the situation that they're in and they read it correctly. They see that their ship is likely to break up. They understand that their lives are in danger and they're scared. That is an appropriate emotive response to something that's dangerous. Be completely inappropriate if they saw all that and didn't fear. So if you're concerned, as you look around you in your society right now, you look at it physically, you look at it spiritually, you look at it intellectually, morally, you look at all of those things. If you are concerned, if you fear, that's appropriate. You should be upset. You should be concerned about things that are dangerous. The sailors see the danger. They assess it correctly. Their emotions are in line with the danger that they see. But you realize they're not overly fearful. Their fear does not paralyze them. Instead, it prompts them to action. They pray. Not to the God who can actually do something about the storm. We'll get to that in a minute. But they realize that what they're facing is beyond the resources that they have. They realize they need some kind of extra special, supernatural help. They're not materialists. They don't think that they can find all that they need in themselves. They don't think that they can find all they, what they need in the natural world. And so they pray. And then they act. They throw their cargo overboard. They untie it from where it's uh, lashed down to the deck. They go into the hold, they bring it up, and they throw it overboard, verse 5, to lighten the ship, to make it so that the ship can ride up higher on the waves instead of getting pounded by them. It's a huge loss to them financially, but they're giving. They're giving sacrificially so that what? So that they all can survive because they recognize they're all in this together. They're all on the same ship. They're all facing the same storm. And the only hope that they have of making it through is if they all pitch in and if they all work together. And so each one is risking their lives, carrying and dumping cargo. All of them together are sacrificing their cargo for the hope of a better life for everyone. There's a corporateness to their pulling together. There's a rejection of extreme individualism. The individualism individualism that says, as long as I've got mine, as long as I'm okay right now, I don't need to jump in. I don't need to help. I don't need to give. It doesn't really matter what happens to anybody else because what happens to them doesn't affect me. On a ship in a storm, it's pretty easy to see, no, we're all in this together. Get up, pitch in, help out. It's easy to see on a ship that's about to break up. But isn't that really the case for every one of us, all the time, none of us can get off this planet. We literally are in the same boat together. Boat's called Earth, but it's constantly facing the ongoing judgment of God against sin. 
And even if we were able to get off this planet, say that we colonized another one, we still won't be independent of each other. We'll still live in societies, societies composed of people who sin and who experience the judgment of God both directly and indirectly because we reject him and we, we reject living his ways in his world. These sailors show us what it's like to have a healthy response to that experience of life in a broken and ruined cosmos. It's a response that pulls together the cares for the greater good of humanity, for the good of everyone who lives under the curse. Jonah, on the other hand, point two, shows us a broken response to a broken world. He took himself, verse five, down into the inner part of the ship, laid down and went to sleep. He does not appreciate the reality, the danger in the world of which, in which he lives. He thinks that you can reject God in God's world and that you can escape dealing with the resulting judgment by simply going to sleep, putting yourself to sleep, not being aware of it. Spiritually, Jonah is out of sync with the way that the world is, and he's out of sync with what is needed in this world. He's put his conscience to sleep so firmly, it's not hammering at him. He doesn't have a fitful sleep at this moment. His sleep is not light. He's not, his conscience isn't waking him up. Instead, he's sound asleep. He's spiritually broken. So broken that when activity is required, he is as physically inert as he is spiritually. The unbelievers in this passage, for all their spiritual blindness, they're calling out to gods who cannot save them. They're trying to save themselves through their own efforts. For all their spiritual blindness, they see more clearly. They're more awake than the prophet of God. Far more aware of the danger of living in a fallen world, more aware than the prophet who doesn't care that they all perish. And that's the charge that the captain levels against him in verse 6. What do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing? How can you sleep at a time like this? Don't you see? Don't you know what's going on outside in the real world? Don't you know how bad it is? Do something. Do something to help. Call out to your God. Why are you not using your faith for the common good? You have access to resources that the rest of us don't. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Do something. We're all in this together. Jonah's not using his resources. He's not out there on deck telling people how to, how to have a relationship with the real God so that it'll calm their fears in the middle of a storm. He's not out there relying on the resources that he has in connection with God to serve the very practical needs of his neighbors. He just doesn't care. And the captain calls him out on it. This unbelieving captain is more righteous than God's hand-picked servant. He sees that Jonah is missing an essential aspect of his humanity. That Jonah is self-absorbed, does not love his neighbor as himself. And the captain sees correctly. There are times, not all the time, but there are times when the world critiques the church because they see something in us that's really there, that's really wrong. And sometimes when the world critiques us, they're not wrong. Now, the importance of a healthy approach to community, a healthy approach to society, it's so obvious in this passage. And I fear that it's so hard to get across in the modern Western world. 
because of our hyper-individualism. We have little sense that we are necessarily connected to each other, to a larger community. And therefore, we struggle to have a sense of responsibility to each other. Cain's question to God, it fits in our mouth. Remember Cain, he, he was Adam and Eve's first son. He killed his brother Abel. God came to him, offering him grace, asked him where Abel was, and Cain tried to bluff his way past what he had done by asking God, am I my brother's keeper? And God's essential response to him was, yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You're your neighbor's keeper. You are responsible for what happens to them, and you are responsible for how you treat them. Ship's captain understood that, understood that we share a common humanity, and therefore understood that we should share a common concern and a common basic care for each other. And that the only way that you can't care is if something's wrong with you, if you're broken. What Jonah's doing is wrong. What God's people do when we don't care about the larger society is equally wrong. It's literally sin against the humanity that we all share. And yet there's something worse in this passage, and it's, it's bad when it is God who rebukes us, but when it's the unbelieving world that sees it and points it out, it's worse. Because an unbelieving world could almost be excused for not caring about anyone else. See, there isn't anything in an unbelieving philosophy or an unbelieving worldview that says they ought to care. In fact, it's just the opposite. Unbelieving worldviews give people a license not to care. For instance, if the origin of our species is the product of random chance evolutionary coincidences, then there is no necessary reason to care for the welfare of any humanity. In that worldview, our origin was meaningless and our destiny is meaningless. And if our start is meaningless, if our end is meaningless, anything in between is what? It's meaningless. So to do something good or bad for humanity, that's meaningless. To do something good or bad for an individual human, that's meaningless. There's no reason to care. Or if the human race has arrived at where we are now by survival of the fittest, that at one time the human race had many different points of origin, but those tribes that are, were weakest, they've now been called out by brute force. If that's the process that led to the current makeup of the rest of the human race, we should be driven by a desire to continue destroying those who are unable to help themselves, rather than driven by a desire to use the strength that we have to rescue others. There's nothing in an unbelieving philosophy of life that allows you to say, we're all equal, and therefore we should all be treated the same, with justice, with compassion, with sacrificial help. So when an unbeliever does care, when they work for the common good, they are acting more in line with God's perspective on this world than their philosophy is. They are acting better than their philosophy of life. And they shame us who have the words of God, who don't always act in line with them. They live above their beliefs too often. We live below our beliefs when Christians don't care about the world around us, when we don't serve, we don't volunteer, we don't speak out against injustice, we don't give, we don't use the gifts and resources that God has given to us to help those in need, when we live below what we believe, the world is right. 
when it rebukes us. When it comes to us and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? In other words, Jonah is living out the part of the bad Samaritan. He does not love his neighbor as himself. Remember the parable of the good Samaritan that Jesus told? A religious man came to Jesus one time and asked what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus turned the question back around and asked him, well, what was commanded in the scripture? And this religious man replied that he needed to love God with all his heart, soul, and strength, and that he should love his neighbor as himself. Jesus agreed. He said it really was that simple. Value God in his opinion more than you value anything else, and value other people like you value yourself. Do this, Jesus said, and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? Now you have to see what he's doing with that question. He's trying to put a limit on his obligation to love. He wants the ability to say to somebody in need, no, I'm not going to expend myself for you. I don't need to interrupt myself. I don't need to extend myself. I don't need to inconvenience myself. I don't need to sacrifice because you're not inside the neighbor box. You're outside the neighbor box. This religious man's trying to limit his obligation to someone from the human race. And in that moment, he's adding a precondition to love, a precondition to extending grace. He took something very simple and decided to complicate it. Jesus, tell me exactly what to do and exactly whom to do it for. Then once I do that, I can close my eyes to any and all other needs that there might be and I can get on with my life. Who's my neighbor? And in response, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, of a man who helps out someone else, someone who would have despised and hated the Samaritan. And so the Samaritan helps this other person. Why? Because that other man was in need. To the religious man who wanted to limit love and his obligation, who wanted to justify himself, Jesus says, stop complicating it. It's really not that hard. See a need in the broader society? Meet that need. See a need? Meet that need. It's really very simple. Jonah, however, lives out the bad Samaritan. And you realize as you sit there and you think about and ponder over Jonah, you realize he doesn't need more instruction doesn't need greater opportunities to serve. The opportunities are all around him, just like the opportunities are all around you. They're all around me. In this world, you cannot avoid seeing needs unless you close your eyes. Jonah needs to wake up. He needs to open his eyes. He needs to see the needs that people have. And he needs a heart that longs for things to be better for those people once he sees them. Now, that's not going to be a very flashy way to live. It's not going to look very significant. Most of the time, it's going to feel fairly mundane. But if it's what real people need, people who are made in the image of God, it will be real grace offered to them that is in line with the grace that's been offered to Jonah, offered to you and to me. Sailors have a healthy response to human suffering. Jonah has a broken response to that same suffering. But why? Why is that? Point three, what's the source of his brokenness? His issue is not intellectual. His issue is moral. He doesn't have love where love should be. He doesn't have that large-hearted love of people that healthy human beings should have. His moral failing grows out of his spiritual condition. 
because love for God, love for people are linked. They're, they're organically connected. And here where you, is where you start to remember that what Jonah has done is he's rejected the word of the Lord. Lord told him, go care for people who are not just like him. Jonah didn't like that word, didn't like the implications of that word. And so Jonah decided not to act on it. So instead of loving the Ninevites like he would want to be loved, he hung on to his hatred. He rejected the word of the Lord. But you can't reject the word of the Lord without rejecting the Lord himself. So Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. He didn't move toward the Ninevites, which means that he had to move away from the Lord because the Lord himself was moving toward the Ninevites. But Jonah's movement away from God can't be limited, can't be contained simply to how he treated the Ninevites. His lack of concern for their welfare and their good is now starting to seep out around the edges. It's now affecting the way that he treats the rest of humanity as well. See, you can't block out God and you can't block out his call on your life without that decision impacting how you treat everyone who's made in his image. Harden your heart toward God and his concerns and simultaneously you will harden your heart toward the people around you and to their concerns. Harden your heart in one area, you'll find yourself more and more in caring in others until you don't even realize how deeply asleep you are. So if point three, the source of the problem is spiritual, if you've put yourself to sleep in some way, then point four, what's the solution? What do you do if right now you don't feel about others like you know that you should? What do you do if you realize that you're not responding like a healthy, whole individual would? What do you do if you're tempted to justify yourself? What do you do if, like me, you're increasingly convicted as you read through this book. If any of that is true for you, then just like Jonah, you have to grab onto this radical grace that God offers to the undeserving. The grace that he offers both to those who don't yet know him and to those who already do. In other words, it always comes back to the gospel. It always does. There is no plan B. There is no Gee, God, this grace thing doesn't seem to be working for me. What else do you have? God is offering you the only thing that will quench your spiritual thirst, the only thing that will satisfy your spiritual hunger. It's the only thing that will make you a healthy human being. Looking for something else that will change people's hearts, that will set them free. What is that? That's just crying out to gods who don't have the power to do anything about people who live under God's judgment. It's just another attempt to save yourself. When our hearts are cold to God, when they're cold toward others, we have to go back to this God who invaded our lives in the first place, who offered us his grace in the first place. We have to go back to him and we have to get grace. So what's that look like? Well, first, trust God. Trust God to get your attention. He's very good at this. God takes complete responsibility for this storm. Verse four, he threw this great wind on the sea. This is his world and he's involved. He's not detached. When he tells you and me to do something, he means it. And he has the power to back it up. He does not let his prophet have what he wants. He doesn't let Jonah flee from his presence just because Jonah doesn't like what he's hearing. He doesn't let Jonah have what he wants, but he also doesn't give Jonah what Jonah deserves. Doesn't immediately destroy him. Instead, he sends a warning to him, just like he wants to send a warning out to Nineveh. 
He's at work to break through Jonah's sleepiness, to bring him to his senses. What is that? That's the start of grace. That's grace pursuing a man who is running just as far, fast as he can away from God. And you can trust him to do the same for you. Look around your life. Are there storms there right now? Things that are causing you to wake up? Things that cause you to think something needs to change? If that's true, praise God. It means he's involved in your life. This is what he does. He gets his people's attention. He does that because he loves you. He wants what's best for you, so trust him. Trust him to get your attention. Trust him to be more in tune with what you need than you are. Then secondly, trust God not just to get your attention, but trust him to remind you of the grace that you need from him in order to get back on the same page with him. The ship's captain wakes Jonah up and says to him, Arise, call out to your God. Which sounds familiar. And if you go back to verse 2, God said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. Arise, call out. God and the captain using the same words. So you have to picture Jonah there. He's in the hole of the ship. He, he's, he's bleary-eyed. He's getting woken up. He wakes up, and standing over him is this unbeliever shouting at him. And what comes out of this man's mouth is the word of the Lord, the word that speaks of God's grace, the word that warns of judgment but that longs to give grace instead. God did not forsake his prophet. Jonah fled his presence but the Lord has brought his presence into Jonah's presence. And he's done that with the same words that Jonah's already heard, only this time they're not just for Jonah's neighbor, the Ninevites. They're for him. God's grace is for him. And it's for you. If your heart is cold toward the Lord, if it's cold toward others, cry out to him. There's grace for you. Trust God to get your attention. Trust him to remind you of his grace for you. And third, trust Jesus. Because Jesus was not sleeping when he needed to be praying. Remember the night in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was arrested? Remember how Jesus went there to pray? He was facing the biggest storm, the biggest judgment on sin that this world has ever known. He wasn't simply afraid that night. He was in agony. He read the situation correctly. He sweat like the blood was already coming out of his body. He knew what God's holy justice demanded, that there was a cost behind this offer of radical grace, that every instance of unlove for God and unlove for neighbor, every instance had to be atoned for. It had to be paid for. He knew that the full wrath of God would have to be exhausted for each infraction of love for each instance of uncaring, each instance of sleepwalking through someone else's pain, each instance of letting an injustice go, each instance of leaving a need unmet, each instance that riled the holy wrath of God would have to be met by bearing the full brunt of that wrath. And Jesus knew that to do that would cost him his life, that there was no way to get out of that coming storm alive. And he was in agony just thinking about it. And so he prayed. He didn't fall asleep like his disciples did. He prayed. 
not trying to lighten his ship, save his own life, not calling on other things, trusting them to get him out of the storm, but he prayed to God until he got to the place where he said, Father, your will be done. I will go where you call me to go and I'll do what you tell me to do. And then he aimed his boat directly into the storm of God's judgment. And he kept that heading until not the ship was broken apart, but his body was. Until he died. So that God's radical grace could be offered to the undeserving. So that his grace could be offered to you. So that you could leave this morning not burdened by guilt, but fully restored to God, fully restored to his presence, and so that you could be fully restored in your humanity, so that you would care for others who are also undeserving, that you would care about them like God cares about them, and that you'd care about them like God cares for you. Let's pray.